Welcome, and thanks for joining us in another installment of CAFE, the Stanford Center for the Study of the Novel podcast. In this episode, our host Margaret Cohen is joined by guests Stephen Best, Chris Cohen, and Mario Tello to discuss Stephen's recent book, None Like Us, Blackness, Belonging, and Aesthetic Life. Stephen Best is a professor of English at the University of California, Berkeley. Mario Tello is a professor of classics at Berkeley, and Chris Cohen is a professor of art history at Reed College. This wide-ranging conversation, recorded on October 10th, 2019, draws on all three disciplines to discuss subjectivity, aesthetics, and the archive. A conversation continued in the Stanford Center for the Study of the Novel's annual Books at the Center event, celebrating Stephen's work. The interview begins with Stephen describing his choice of format for the book. You'll hear Margaret join the conversation next, then Mario, and then Chris. We're thrilled to be sharing this conversation with you, so thank you again for listening in as we scholars have a friendly chat among ourselves. I think telling the story of how the book got written is a good way of sort of explaining why it has the form. Okay. that it has, which is a little eccentric in that I write about a diversity of materials. Um, all forms in my mind, works of art, poems, novels, and then I, do, I also think of like the archive as a kind of form, looking at it as a literary critic. So I actually, I, I, I had a book that I, worked, I was writing um, called Unfit for History, which is now the title of the introduction. And it was a kind of series of meditations of like problems concerning slavery and the archive. So I had a chapter on like the problem of witchcraft, like how, how to like account for witchcraft, magical thinking in the archive. Um, the, the book actually began, and I do say this, with a chapter on rumor in the archive, like rumors that would sort of circulate among slave communities in the Caribbean about their emancipation. That was like the first thing I wrote. It was the, it was the germ of the idea for the book. So there were a series of chapters that were all about these kind of problems of of like slavery, race, and the archive. I finished that draft of the book and I kind of thought to myself, no one's gonna be interested in this book because historians have looked at these archives, but literary critics are gonna, for the most part, not really have much to say. So I, it was one of these cases where I was, um, I was unhappy with the form that book took in the draft. And at that time, I don't know if maybe Toni Morrison's novel, A Mercy, had just come out. I sat down and read it, I just, you know, to figure out what I thought about the book, I started writing about it. And then once I wrote that chapter on a mercy, I was like, oh, this book actually, it has to be about these problems of slavery, race, identity, the archive, but I really have to foreground works of literature that maybe help me to think about the problem if they aren't explicitly addressing that problem. So I completely, I was on, a, I was about to go on sabbatical and I just completely was like, okay, I'm going to spend my sabbatical like reorganizing this book. And at the same time, um, in the midst of my attempts to kind of write, I would sort of in the middle of the day sort of escape to SF MoMA to go look at art, to kind of whatever, keep the juices flowing. And there was this exhibition at SF MoMA of the work of Mark Bradford. 
and it, it blew me away visually, but also because, just the way the work itself invites you to kind of ponder the process of its construction. And I would, I just kept going back every day to like look at these works because they were helping me to think about these problems of the archive, of matter that's in that's there but's inaccessible, etc. And so at that point, I just decided the book needed to be about the aesthetic objects that are helping me to think about the problems, not so much a direct attempt to address the problem of the archive, if that makes sense. And the larger context for this is that sort of in the field of African-American literary and cultural studies, and in literary studies of late, um, last decade or so, there's been a real interest in problems of the archive, sort of some of it coming out of deconstruction and Derrida and Foucault, but a lot of it having to do with the, pro the difficulty of reconstructing the lives of people who left no written record of their lives. It, like, I think that feels like a good synopsis of like the problem of the archive in the humanities. So I wanted to address that problem, but I had to figure out an imaginative way of getting to it, a way of getting to it that would make the book interesting to humanists. So that's why the book has the shape that it does, which it's not the shape that I projected when I started working on the project. It's the shape that came about through really attending to the problems I was having <laughs> while I was writing it. Just thinking about process mm -hmm. and building process into the work of criticism, I, I think is a really fruitful way forward. We would all want to talk a bit about your process um, so I, in general, in my work, I try to bridge the gap between traditional classical scholarship and critical theory. And uh, my new project, which is now finished, fortunately, was an attempt to reconceptualize the aesthetic experience of Greek tragedy, which for a long time has been dominated by the idea of catharsis. And uh, what is interesting is that it's not just Aristotle <laughs> who thinks that tragedy is all about catharsis, but it's about a moment of reparation, a moment of restoration. But also when Freud and also Lacan and also other psychoanalysts talk about tragedy, mm -hmm. in spite of the fact that they are the ones you know, who theorized all the theoretical apparatus for conceptualizing anti-catharsis, they actually go back to Aristotle. So when Freud in Beyond the Pleasure Principle talks about tragedy in the same section in which he discusses the Forda episode, he says that tragedy is about the pleasure of recouping a loss. Mm -hmm. Same thing Lacan when he talks about Antigone, he says that it's precisely the splendor of Antigone, you know, that moment of beauty that in a sense offers a reparative moment, a kind of protection from the loss that otherwise tragedy exposes us to. So I wanted to go against this tradition a bit, and so I was, one, I was looking for a model that could help me theorize the anti-reparative, the anti-catharsis in tragedy. And so I, I was really interested in Derrida's archive fever, mm -hmm. where really preservation 
you know, is seen as something constantly haunted by the death drive, and so preservation always implicates destruction. So I was interested in what, in the expression, anarchivic aesthetics. Mm -hmm. That is how you can turn the idea of uh, um, the co-implication of destruction and preservation in the archive into an aesthetic mode, mm -hmm. into an anti-cathartic mode of feeling. So that's why I was interested not just in different theorization of the death drive after Freud, but also in Stephen's book, which is about the archive, of course, and also it's about queer theory, and I also use a lot of queer theory, especially Lee Edelman, mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Um, to theorize anti-catharsis. And then I tested some of his ideas in this course that I taught in complete last year for undergraduates, and we started from antiquity with Oedipus, and then we ended with Valeria Luiselli's Lost Children Archive, which is actually something I'm going to talk about mm. today, trying to establish a dialogue between her and your book. Mm. And we, I assigned the chapter on Toni Morrison mm, to yeah, the yeah. students, mm -hmm. even if we did not read Mercy but Paradise, which is also oh, yeah, sure. very archival because yeah, of yeah. the oven and so yeah, forth. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So I, my work sort of sits somewhere between art history and media studies. I'm interested in forms that the subject takes or that personhood takes or that humanity takes when it gets caught up in data collection, the data collection industries. But I'm not, I, I have always not wanted to start from the premise that the subject takes the form of a liberal subject, so and with someone with an interiority, who if they're a proper subject, they speak their interiority out and they have a voice by way of that. So queer theory and black studies have been really important to me as ways of beginning with an idea of a different sense of how personhood is mm. constructed or how it can be experimented with. So it, it does a funny thing to my process of working, which is that I, I often work with artworks, artworks that have no ostensible relationship with media or networks, mm -hmm. partially because I'm interested in trying to sense out things that don't really get written on the face of either Twitter, right, or on the face of people commenting about social media, um, but that are sort of lived at the level of the subject and lived at levels of the subject that maybe have never existed before. And, some of which are really violent and horrible, and some of which maybe are interesting and have possibilities. So what I'm working on now, for instance, I look to early black abstractionist Alma Thomas as a way of starting to think about, and her kind of semi-gridded patterned paintings that she basically pursued for her whole life, as a way to think about the early incarnations of the computer screen, as both as spaces where labor is sort of being reconceived as a way to think about how the subject exists within a kind of gridded structure space. So my process is very meandering to start because I'm trying to find my way into that problem, both through looking really hard at the paintings and doing all the responsible art historical stuff of learning about their uh, literature about them, but also doing as much work as I can on the technical side to understand so I'm so I'm always kind of working in both directions, and I never quite know where I'm gonna meet. It's sort of have floating around as you're all talking, like what is the archive to you? Yeah, because on one level it can feel a little bit like the archive is everything in the way that neoliberalism is everything. It's just like it's sort of like everything you turn to is the archive. So saying sort of specifically, 
in my case, it's like traces of the human subject that are not self-representations, right? <laughs> so it doesn't have to be in an archive, but it's like someone's record of another subject. If I look back at the book, well, what seems to kind of come to the surface as like archival? It's like, yeah, the, it's that, and that's that moment that Foucault is interested in, yes. in Lives of Infamous Men, is like, it's not a self-representation, it's, it is a representation by the state of a, of a subject, but it's, it's also, to go to Mario's point, it's like an archival in the sense that it's also sort of destructive of the subject. It's, it's the only trace we have of these persons. And you're often dealing, at least in this book, with archives whose express purpose has been to delete or erase or destroy mm -hmm. the very mm -hmm. subjects that you're interested in getting at. Mm -hmm. So in some ways, it's like you have no choice but to approach them at least non-representationally, right? mm -hmm. if not a mm -hmm. representationally, because they don't, because mm -hmm. otherwise, in the representational realm, they just really often don't exist, or they exist as erasures. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I think that it's also your you know take on the archive and in a sense, urges us to think beyond representation, to try to look, because of course, every time we try to connect mm -hmm. with the archive, it's a form of non-connection, and we are facing this gap, mm -hmm. you know, mm -hmm. trying to create what is not there, mm -hmm. and of course, we try to fill out that space, but the only possibility is precisely to engage with the work of art beyond representation mm -hmm. through mm -hmm. sensation as you effects effects mm -hmm. or mm -hmm. affect mm -hmm. right. affect yeah 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 by the way we are reenacting what Foucault and Anne Fage did because you know they had a radio there is a radio interview in which they talk about the project of the archive of the Bastille mm. and actually that radio interview has just been published by oh, Nancy really? Luxon you know there is this companion book uh, with that essay by Foucault and then some essays, oh. but there is also the translation into English of that interview uh, where Foucault uses that famous phrase in relation to that essay, The Lives of Infos with yeah, Men, yeah. and he talks about the archive as the guttural cry, the voices, you know, coming out, you know, of the smooth surface of power as a guttural cry. That's a, a mm, phrase mm, that he uses while mm. talking with Anne Farge, who was this uh, very um, uh, interesting historian with whom he had planned, you know, this uh, edition. And then I think he had a fallout with the publisher so that what we have, you know, the this collection of petitions which came out in 2016 in English is actually very different from the project the, that he had originally envisioned for which, you know, the, the essay that you start from was uh, supposed to be the, the preface. But, I mean, is, is the guttural cry, like, is that some cathartic, like, where does it sit? In well, I think that for Foucault, after? the guttural cry is precisely the voice of uh, these people whom the power tries to suppress, tries to incorporate into its own system, mm -hmm. creating this surface which is impermeable, and then there is a tear at a certain point, which is this guttural cry. Mm. You know, well, what Stephen does, I think, goes beyond in terms of the, uh, in terms of imagery and also of concept, because this tear within the surface is not just the emergence of what su was supposed to be 
domesticated and canceled out by precisely the relationality mm -hmm. between that world and us, which cannot but be a kind of rapture. Cannot be a... Well, in your case, yeah. it has to be a kind of rapture. It has right? to be a kind it's of rapture. It's a kind yeah. of non-relational yeah. relation. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So I think that you go beyond that image. Uh, I love that Foucault essay. My students also loved it. Mm -hmm. yeah. uh, it's so beautifully written. In a sense, it really anticipates, malgré lui, um, phenomenology and the current interest in affect, in mm -hmm. the affective term. Mm -hmm. yeah. um, mm -hmm. And that sensorium between past and present, like, and it's not, it's it's not a bond, a relation. No, you know what I mean. But right. it, there, you know, that's what I tried to do. And you know, it's it, it's an interesting that Foucault essay is such a fascinating essay because it structures a whole field of work, you know, in queer studies and black studies. Yeah. Um, you know, and you know, I think it, it went from. A relative obscurity to then being, you know, the sort of... Well, now it gets republished, republished, It's the essay. But that, se that sense of the censor, that, that is in the Foucault. That's, you know, that, like, you know, I tried to track the way he uses that lang the vibration. language of vibration to kind of talk, you know, try to kind of address his implication in the guttural cry right. like how he's implicated in that clearly the guttural cry is his own yes yeah, yeah. <laughs> you know, um, or, or an image of his own project right uh, well it seems like maybe that given we've all stated some kind of interest in our work in what we call the non-representational mm -hmm. it might be worth saying why mm. what our ethical or yeah. commitments are to that yeah. Term or to that way of unthinking the subject. One of the reasons why um, I'm fairly committed to that idea is that has to do with my archive, I suppose, which is sort of networked life or digital capitalism or I'm not too committed to one particular periodizing term, but, but I am interested in what happens to the subject when they get produced by and interwoven with data. And in that sense, that I think is an importantly non-representational process in the sense that it's not about a hearkening back to what a person was, that data isn't mobilized in that direction necessarily, even if it is an archive of one's past. It's an attempt to construct at least a, a place for the subject to inhabit, come to identify with or disidentify with, and then in that identification or disidentification with whatever image gets served up, Amazon books, recommendations or whatever, that itself is data that then helps the data align itself to you better. So it's a kind of an ongoing, unspooling construction that's never quite you, but that you're always meant to sort of encounter and match yourself up with in some way. And, I, and so it, it's important to me that the vocabulary that tries to get at that is a non-representational vocabulary mm -hmm. because I think it's sort of it technically, that's what that process is. And when, when a kind of politics of representation gets put up against that, like we should have better data representations of us, then you come to get caught in the kind of toggle or oscillation that your book is so invested in tracking, which is like, it comes to look like, well, those are bad versions of us, in other words, bad representations of us, and we need to make better representations of us. Or even something like the politics of obscuring your face so that you make bad data. Um, that seems to be a kind of a bad choice to me and one of the ways to start to get out of that bad choice is to think about personhood and in its non-representational forms 
I think for me, it's about a long, I, you use the phrase politics of representation. Um, and that was the, I was going to introduce that phrase just because I feel like a lot of my intellectual life has been shadowed by mm -hmm. the question of the politics of representation, race and the politics of representation, right? So when I was in grad school, right, the form that that problem of like representational politics took, I remember the kind of the intervention that black British cultural studies did for like African-American studies in terms of like challenging African-American studies politics of representation of like of American blackness as exemplary for blackness as such. But I've been like thinking um, and this summer I, I read Jeffrey Stewart's amazing biography of Elaine Locke and that biography just gave me a sense that the arc for this problem of politics of representation is much longer and that, you know, the sort of bat, like in some ways, the kind of intellectual battles and aesthetic battles between, say, W.E.B. Du Bois and Elaine Locke are very much about uh, the residues of a kind of 19th century Victorian politics of respectability and what is sort of the, the kind of queer coup d'etat that the Harlem Renaissance was of wanting to kind of disrupt that politics of representation. And so, yeah, I guess for me, it's it's like wanting to kind of think my place in that longer argument about race and the politics of representation and queerness in my own effective experience, but also just intellectual experience is often offering a kind of disruption of something like representational politics. Black abstraction, the terms of like, a lot of the kind of debates, I don't really talk about them, but the terms of a lot of the debates around black abstraction in, say, the 70s mm -hmm. um, and 80s was very much about, like, abdicating responsibility for producing a positive representation of blackness. Can so, yeah. I ask a question just yeah. about, uh, you know, I teach the Middle Passage a lot, mm -hmm. and the archive yeah, yeah. is so important to it, and mm -hmm. um, the importance of melancholy historicism as almost the only attitude that mm -hmm. um, one can have towards mm -hmm. towards it. Mm -hmm. And um, like a flashpoint, there are narratives by African-American seamen or Turner's The Slave Ship is, mm -hmm. is a really powerful flashpoint. Mm -hmm. And I was thinking as I was reading your book, well, what would it be like to pair this with, you know, reading some archival artifacts mm. from mm. trying to recover the Middle Passage. And I'm wondering, I mean, Toni Morrison is obviously working through that a lot, but I'm just wondering if you have any thoughts about that. Well, I think one of the things that's interesting about the way you deal with archival materials and not the Middle Passage per se, but, but materials like it and, and the way you deal with what you call melancholy historicism is you don't actually turn away from them, mm -hmm. from those materials. Mm -hmm. It's more about the disposition you have toward them. Right, so it's not as though the the solution to melancholy historicism is to leave the archive behind, mm -hmm. or leave the slavery slave mm -hmm. past behind, or leave mm -hmm. the middle passage behind. It's to listen for a different thing, and it's to listen for the thing that we can know, that we can identify with, mm -hmm. that we don't know how to be intimate with, and that it just seems important to me mm -hmm. that it's that in the your discontent with mm -hmm. the options. Mm -hmm posed by melancholy historicism, mm -hmm. right, recovery on the one mm -hmm. hand or erasure on the other, mm -hmm. that 
it's still you stay with the objects, mm -hmm. still you stay with the materials, mm -hmm. still mm -hmm. you, I mean, and the mm -hmm. whole latter half of your book dwells in those materials and archival mm -hmm. materials mm -hmm. from mm -hmm. the stories from the slave archive. Mm -hmm. um, to the LA uprising. Right. You know, right. like, what to do with, in some ways, the rumors of what was said during that uprising. Like, what, you know, I don't mm -hmm. want to say it's not true that mm -hmm. someone or some group of people shouted they killed Martin Luther King <laughs> during the... LA Rebellion, but I don't, I, I don't take my task to figure out the truth or okay. what at the what happened. Yes. It's more what like what what is that as a form like the circulation of that. Mm. Well, disposition I think is a great word. Yeah, disposition. Disposition yeah. because yeah. it has the idea of affect built into it of mood, but also etymologically, position. You position yourself you know, in front of the work of art, yeah. in front mm -hmm. of the archival trace, mm -hmm. but then there is the this. So it's not a connection, but it's a negative connection. It's a connection that operates through negativity, mm -hmm. through disruption, through destabilization, mm -hmm. as opposed to mm -hmm. the kind of identification mm -hmm. that the melancholic criticism, mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. you mm -hmm. know, aspires to create, mm -hmm. an identification which becomes then, you know, in Freud's classical definition of melancholy introjection. And so then b carries with itself the danger mm -hmm. of incorporation mm -hmm. oh, yeah. and mm -hmm. digestion mm -hmm. and, mm -hmm. and policing and mm -hmm. all of that, the desnormalization. So disposition, I think, is a great idea because it really encapsulates, you know, this yeah. uh, confronting the work of art, literally, facing, facing it, but uh, in a problematic way, mm -hmm. which is the this, without mm -hmm. imposing an interpretive, you know, mm -hmm. reading. Because, mm -hmm. you know, then mm -hmm. you also, I think at a certain point when you talk about El Anathui, yeah, yeah. that you go back to your work on surface reading, yeah, I yeah, think, yeah, and yeah, yeah. you talk about... Uh, um, Disposition and dispossession. Yeah. <laughs> it's just like, I'm not, mm -hmm. that what you just said, connects those things in my head um, uh, in ways maybe that were sort of working out in the writing, but I never articulated really clearly. It's like, but that's right. I, I should say something about the shape of that first chapter because it, ha it relates to my own intellectual history and biography, but also it, you're absolutely right. There's something I want to do in front of that work that's not about interpreting it. Um, it's about allowing myself to be repeatedly dispossessed by it. I want it to produce its that effect that it produced the first time. I keep going back to it in the hopes that it will produce that effect. The vertigo which it won't about, do, yes. which it won't do. But but like I said, like my intellectual biography, right? So my intellectual biography is that I was an art history major as an undergrad and I thought about getting my PhD in art history, but I at a certain point I sort of felt like something was happening in my art history classes, which is like I was being taught how to be a close reader, like just to really stand in front of a work of art and describe and, see, and say what I see. But then I felt like I was being trained to write about works of art in the past tense. Like, oh, I was always having to sort of talk about... What they did. Yeah, what they did. <laughs> <laughs> and I was just like, this is, you know, at the very least, this is producing a certain kind of intellectual schizophrenia. But... In th with this book, I really and so for this book, I really felt like I wanted to write in the way that I was trained to look, which is to try to make the shape of the essay or the shape of the chapter reflect 
my repeated returns and the things I was expecting each time I returned. I feel like in some ways I kind of um, got the courage to do this after I read um, T.J. Clark's The Sight of Death. <laughs> Where I was like, hey, wait, hey, he does it as a journal entry. I'm going to try to do it as a book chapter and see if that helps to figure out again. I think it, your book is a kind of performative utterance because it's so lyrical. That's why I like wow, it so much. Okay. And in a sense, you are kind of enacting while writing the kind of uh, aesthetic model that you are advocating for. Right, right. Uh, you know, um, like your great reading of the Elanatsui. You know, it's not gold, it's not trash. And so we are situated in the gap mm -hmm. between gold. And right. so you, you situate the hermeneutic process in that aesthetic moment, mm -hmm. you know, that, in that interval between these two poles. And, and this, I, this really does go back to my sense of the we that matters to me, which is the we of kind of attentiveness and curiosity, um, that you can be, that you could be me talking to myself, but that you can also be anyone else who sees the same thing as me and it doesn't have to be everyone right right like it's i i felt like i formally had to figure out how to how to contend with the fact that like we are always being the imperative is always to make claims about your object that are they have some right. kind of validity they have some kind of validity yeah, uh, yeah, yeah that yeah. captures something that is in red and one of the questions that I think you lodge in that space between you and the work that I think is really helpful could be really helpful for a really broad range of projects is you you don't presume that you know what a good outcome would be in approaching the thing hmm. right um, I learned something about the relation between African America or mm -hmm. I learned how to see his work as a way to think about the role that the Middle Passage has played in the mm -hmm. present day. Or, you know, like you do, I think mm -hmm. you, as much as you can, mm -hmm. you try to suspend mm -hmm. your thought about what it would mean to do something good mm -hmm. in front of that work, or for something mm -hmm. good to happen, whatever, whatever that would mean. And the other question that you leave there that I think is really interesting is you allow us to wonder about what one is wanting or desiring of, of, in, sort of in and around a we. So that a reading, you can ask after reading your book, what do I, what kind of we am I wanting in producing the reading I'm mm -hmm. producing? Producing, right? yeah. Producing the outcome I'm producing. Yeah. What, what implications does it have for some kind of collective formation? Mm -hmm. Not just mm -hmm. academically, although academically. Academically, yeah, yes. Disciplinarity, mm -hmm. yes, of course. Mm -hmm. But also more generally at the level of just connection between one person and mm -hmm. another that might happen through reading or that might happen through art. Or, right. Like the, the, right. uh, all kinds of interesting things stop happening <laughs> when you have to ask yourself the question of how am I, what what kind of we am I actually presuming or mm -hmm. constructing when I'm writing this thing when mm -hmm. I'm producing. That came very late in the writing. The sort of you know, like I said, the book in its earlier draft was called Unfit for History, and then as I was writing, that very amazing quote I was maybe teaching David Walker and that amazing David I just I was just like that retort because I wanted you know the book is about so one of the ways the book deals with the 
the guttural cry in the archive. The, the, it, and it, it's a cry. It's like a scream. It's not, it's not lexical, right? It's not, you know, it's not a, it doesn't have a meaning. One of the ways the book tried to kind of deal with that was I, I, really, I, I really tried to use the tools of, like, rhetoric to sort of just deal with these negativities, the forms in which our relationship to them is, like you say, dispossessive, negative. And then, I, you know, I came across that David Walker quote while teaching, and I was like, that is all about rhetoric and all about negative forms of rhetoric. None like us, I pray God that none like us ever may live again until time shall be no more. Like a form of negative rhetoric that produces the very thing it's sort of deny, it's denying or, or seeks to deny. Once David Walker kind of, at a certain point, he just, the whole book just got revised with the sense of the problematic us. It, the difficulty of constituting the us, both then and now, or the contingent nature of that us, in the name of what vision of a, the collective is this work being produced? Like that, it became clear to me that that was what I was grappling with in all of the work in the field that I was trying to engage. It was the the us, the we that's kind of figured. So anyway, that's just to sort of say when that when did that question of like scholarship and the collective in whose name the scholarship is being produced came to the fore and also you know i mean you asked earlier about process um margaret and i, I have to say like one of the things about ha like having a book not quite being satisfied with the book and then having to kind of be honest in your revision was that uh for me i can't remember who it was Annie Prue or who said like the process of writing that final stage of writing is the stage where you take the lies out you know like all of the all of the little stories that you tell yourself to kind of keep writing and like to say oh this book is really about I, I like that process it's like I had to take all the lies out that this was a book about the archive or that this was a book From about all the grant applications you had to write yeah yeah yeah, yeah exactly exactly <laughs> all you really do have to go back and like make sure none of that is in there but that also meant that I had to be very honest and full-throated in terms of my critique. Like, oh, this is really sort of about black studies. And um, the question of like our relationship to the past or the question of our condition of possibility is far more kind of vexed and complicated than we are often willing to admit. It's incredibly oh, inspiring, yeah. and I, I, I'm just thinking of like our listeners for this podcast and for students who yeah, I was thinking grad writing students. their dissertations yeah, yeah, and yeah. having the confidence to go through that process and then, you know, take out the lies <laughs> with their graduate advisors and grant and fellowship committees. Thank, thank you, you. Yeah, thank you for thank inviting you, us. No, thank you, Mario. Yeah, thank That's you really fun. just for opening up a space for um, reflection. One of our hopes from the podcast is that people can hear how scholars talk among themselves mm -hmm. in that casual way when they might meet each other yeah. for coffee or yeah. in an airport. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah, 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 totally. Good, Good night, America. <laughs>
We would also like to thank Stephen Best, Mario Tello, and Chris Cohen for their generosity in agreeing to this conversation. Thanks to our team at the Center for the Study of the Novel, to An Trong Nguyen and Maritza Colon for their operational support, to our graduate coordinators, Victoria Zarita, Cynthia Giancotti, and Casey Patterson, to Eric Fredner for editing, consultation, and sound engineering, and to our host and director, Margaret Cohen. The Center for the Study of the Novel is a subsidiary of the English Department at Stanford University. 